Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, my proposal is I'm going to read from the book, and then I'll, you'll ask questions about it, and then I'll answer them, and then I'll sign the book for people who want me to sign the book. Seconded? Okay. <laughs> uh, introduction. My son, his friend's mother, and two explanations. Can you hear me? Okay, good. Uh, the ontology of Santa Claus didn't impinge upon my life until my son Ari was in kindergarten. Ari did not believe in Santa Claus. He was supposed to go to the zoo in early December with his friend Skylar, and Skylar's mother Tammy called me up and said she didn't want her son to go because there were reindeer there. And reindeer, she felt, would lead to a discussion of Santa Claus. Tammy's son, Skyler, did believe in Santa Claus. He was still firmly a sweet child and not yet in the sour and rebellious teenager territory. And she wanted him, at least for a while, to stay that way. So Tammy wanted to cancel the play date to ensure that Ari would not tell her son, there is no Santa Claus, he's just your parents, and shake his belief. So I found this a troubling interaction because I thought Tammy was sacrificing her son's friendship with Ari, who was real, <laughs> in order to preserve his relationship with Santa Claus, who was not. Why was I so sure Santa Claus didn't exist? Not because I've never seen him. I've never seen Israeli supermodel Bar Raffaelli, and she exists, or at least she did as of the time of this writing. <laughs> And not because if I went to the North Pole, I wouldn't see him and his elves, just a lot of ice and snow and so forth, because there are any number of explanations that would square with that. Santa might emit a field from his beard that makes people miss him. The elves might have a machine that causes light to bend. Or I could have met him and then been convinced by Mrs. Claus to undergo brain surgery that erased my memory. No, the real reason I'm sure is that nobody had ever told me he did, and belief in Santa Claus did not fit in with a number of other things that I held to be true, such as reindeer don't fly, toys come from the store, and so on. I told this story to my daughter, and she said, I believe in Santa Claus. I also asked her if she believed in the Easter Bunny, and she said, yes, I'm a kid, so I believe in everything. <laughs> I told this story to my wife, who's a psychologist raised in communist Russia, Romania, and she said something along the lines of, American parents lie to their children about their stupidity, and then the children grow up and find out their parents lied to them. No wonder American children are so screwed up. <laughs> I remained puzzled by Tammy's behavior, and I could think of two possible solutions or explanations. The first one is the liar explanation. For some reason back in the past, American children were taught to believe in Santa Claus, probably because their parents thought it was a good way to scare them into being good. 
When the children grew up and stopped believing in Santa Claus, they decided it would be a good idea to trick their children into believing. So society is basically divided into two groups of people, the liars and the lied to. The liars have motivations ranging from the benevolent, parents presumably, to the self-interested, the sellers of Christmas merchandise, American politicians who want a national myth that will unite a nation of immigrants, and so on. So let's be blunt and call this the liar story. I've observed evidence that the liar story is true. I work in Hollywood, which pumps a lot of images and stories out into the consciousness of the globe. And when we were writing an episode of uh, The Big Bang Theory, in which the character Sheldon kills Santa Claus in a D&D game, one of the writers wanted to be sure that our story left the existence of Santa Claus open, because the kids were gonna, his kids were going to watch the show, and they believed in Santa Claus. Of course, since he was a writer for a U.S. sitcom that is supported by commercials, his benevolent motivations for lying messed with the less benevolent motivations of our ad advertisers. Second explanation is a crazy explanation. Another solution to the puzzle was that something in Tammy's mind is divided or dissociated. So according to this theory, it's possible that a part of Tammy's mind does believe in Santa Claus. She doesn't talk about it when she talks to other adults, but when alone with her child, she believes. The part of Tammy that believes in Santa might not even be a part that has access to her mouth. So she might never say, I believe in Santa Claus, but she's disposed to have dreams, fantasies, and feelings related to St. Nick. As a consequence, she's uncomfortable with having her son lose faith in Santa Claus because some system in her brain believes too. How can one person believe and not believe in Santa Claus? If you're a strong proponent of the conspiracy story, you may not believe this is the case. You might think that if she ever does confess to Santa belief, she's just lying. After all, she buys toys at the store. How can she honestly maintain they came down the chimney? But people believe different things at different times and in different contexts. Let's imagine Tammy goes home and goes to bed. As she drifts off to sleep, she hears a voice in her head, one that sounds like her own. It says, Santa does exist. I remember waiting for him to come. How do I know he didn't? Yes, part of me thinks he didn't come and never will, but why should I listen to that part? Tammy has a couple of different Tammies inside her. She has a Tammy who once believed in Santa, but now buys toys from the store. And she has a Tammy who still does believe in Santa. This Tammy feels good when she thinks about Santa and angry when she thinks about Eric not believing in Santa. <laughs> this Tammy can effortlessly respond to Santa images and Santa television shows and songs about Santa. Tammy's self could be divided. She could be more than one of her Tammies at the same time. That is, she could have one voice in her head that says, of course Santa does not exist, and another voice that says, I hope he brings me something good. Or herself could be divided across time. That is, she could make fun of Santa Claus all year long until Christmas season, and then talk during Christmas as if she does believe in the jolly old saint. Since it invokes voices in the head, let us call this uncharitably the crazy explanation. The liar and the crazy explanations are similar on a deep level, because while liar appeals to dissociation on the interpersonal level, crazy appeals to dissociation on the intrapersonal level. Societies run by conspiracies built on lies are schizophrenic, and crazy people lie to themselves. In the crazy explanation, there is some kind of disunity within Tammy. There is a part of her that believes and a part that doesn't believe. In the liar explanation, there is a disunity in America. There is part that believes and part that doesn't believe. And in both, there is something sort of screwed up about the relationship among these parts. You can even switch the explanations. You can say that Tammy is lying to herself or that America is a little crazy on the subject of Santa Claus. Is the liar or the crazy explanation correct? Versions of both of them are found throughout rationalist critiques of religion and scientific accounts of human behavior in general. For example, uh, Marxism is a liar explanation. Priests lie to people to keep the powerful in power, and they say there'll be pie in the sky when you die. Psychoanalysis, crazy. 
People's minds create irrational beliefs to defend against all the psychic pressure they're under, what with death and wanting to sleep with their mothers and so on. <laughs> Neurobiology, crazy. People have evolved modules in their brains that perceive humans as existing because it was evolutionarily important to know if somebody was in your cave with you. When we think Santa exists, it's because that chunk of nerve tissue is firing when we don't need it to, just as hay fever comes when our sneeze reflex is triggered by some antigen that's not really sneeze-worthy. A meme theory, liar because crazy. Memes are programs of cultural DNA. They replicate if and only if they force us to believe them and spread them. In discussions like this, we're usually ready to have our beliefs challenged and to hear the experts lay down some science. However, one thing science can't do is tell us what stand to take on science as an approach to reality in the rest of our lives. Some scientists and philosophers of science will deny this and say that of course science tells us how we should approach our lives and the rest of reality. Obviously, science tells us we should do it scientifically. But when they're saying that, they're not doing science. They're doing science journalism or maybe science advocacy. Science doesn't tell us what we should think about science. To see how this is so, all you have to do is take any of those explanations above, the Marxist, the psychoanalytical, the neurobiological, or the meme, and apply it to itself. Thus, Marxists believe in Marxism only because it's in their class interest to do so. Psychoanalysts believe in psychoanalysis only as a defense against anxiety. Neuroscientists believe in neuroscience only because their brains have evolved to see causation. And meme theorists believe in memes only because the meme complex called meme theory has hijacked their brains and made them replicate it. These theories all explain themselves just as much as they explain Santa Claus. So it can't be the case that just because something has a supposedly scientific explanation that we should stop believing in it, or we would stop believing in scientific explanations. These theories explain themselves, and they explain Santa Claus. How to go on vis-a-vis -vis the theories or vis-a-vis -vis Santa Claus once we realize that isn't a scientific question anymore. You can compare the role of an intellectual theory to the role of money. A textbook in economics or finance may tell you how to go on if you want to make a lot of money, but it won't tell you how to decide how important money should be in our lives. That's a, debate we can, that's a question we can debate and consider positions, all the way from making all our choices based on the financial upside to ignoring money and wandering America as hippies, or we can stake out an intermediate position. Similarly with science, we can embrace it totally, ignore it, or let, live our lives somewhere in between. You might think it's obvious that if Tammy says she believes in Santa, she is crazy or lying, and back up your argument by the correct points that crazy people don't know they're crazy, and liars usually lie about whether they're lying. But there are two intertwined problems with this approach. One is ethical, and the other is epistemological. The first problem, ethical, it is obnoxious and rude to go around accusing the parents of our kids' friends and other people of being crazy and liars. Tammy doesn't seem to be lying. She has her son's best interests at heart, or at least seems to. Second, epistemological. This is summed up in the old joke in which one Anglican priest explains the meaning of orthodoxy to another one. My doxy is orthodoxy, your doxy is heterodoxy. Doxy is an old word for prostitute. The point of the joke is that sane and truthful need to be defined in such a way that we can tell who is crazy and lying without smuggling in our own other beliefs. Otherwise, saying you're crazy to believe in Santa Claus is just like saying Santa Claus does not exist in a louder, more hectoring tone of voice. It's a personal attack masquerading as a psychological explanation. If we assume that Santa Claus doesn't exist, we might be able to argue that Tammy is crazy, but we can't use the fact that she's crazy to prove Santa doesn't exist. Maybe, though, there's a more direct way to proving Santa doesn't exist. If we want to know if Santa Claus exists, couldn't we just look out there and see if there is an object in the world that corresponds to my belief? 
But what does it mean for a belief to correspond to a thing? Is it a clear idea or just a fuddy, fuzzy metaphor that's too murky to illuminate what exists and what doesn't? Considering the consider the following thought experiment. Imagine a field so big that we can play the biggest game of Red Rover in history in it. Imagine we could open up our skull and have all the beliefs get out and stand on one side of the field holding arms. On the other side of the field stand all the things. One by one, the beliefs call out what they are about. When the belief in Africa calls out his name, I'm a belief in Africa. The actual object, Africa, raises its hand, and they go off to a side field labeled true beliefs. Bees, I'm a belief in bees. Great, we are bees, and they go off together. I'm a belief in the planet Neptune. I am the planet Neptune. Let's get a drink. <laughs> and off they would go paired up. At the end of the day, a few beliefs would be left standing on their side of the field. They raise their hands. I'm a belief in the lost continent of Atlantis. And nothing answers on the other side. There is no lost continent of Atlantis. I'm a belief in pixies. No answer. There are no pixies. I'm a belief in Santa Claus. No answer because there is no Santa Claus. The belief in Santa Claus is wrong because there is no Santa Claus to correspond to it. Now, this is called the correspondence theory of truth, but there are problems with it. Um, the first problem is that our beliefs don't separate themselves into little bits. How would we count beliefs? Is, that, is my belief that Africa exists a super belief made up of beliefs in all the people, countries, and animals that I believe are in Africa? Or is it part of a larger belief that the world is divided into land masses? Or a still larger belief that there are such things as physical objects of which Africa is an instance? All and none. My beliefs form a web, or better yet, a world. If anything corresponds to anything, it's the whole assemblage of beliefs, all linking arms, who correspond to the whole assemblage of facts, all linking arms. My mind corresponds to the world as a whole. But there's a much more serious problem. When we imagine playing our game, we imagine that we ourselves are standing in the field somehow adjudicating the game. We're looking at the beliefs on one side of the field and the things on the other. But when we look at a thing and see it, that's just another way of saying we believe that that thing exists. There's no way to step outside ourselves and examine the world and our beliefs from the side. So consider this classic sketch that illustrates epistemology. You may know this one. This is the, there's the apple in the head and then there's the apple and there's some kind of line connecting the two of them. What is inside the head that looks like an apple? It's a bunch of atoms or if you prefer neurons and glial cells, or if you prefer an organ consisting of a prefrontal cortex, a cerebellum, the periaqueductal gray, the hippocampus, and so forth. But there's nothing in there that looks like an apple. And where can we stand where the picture invites us to stand, looking at the belief and the apple from the side? Nowhere. We have to be within our beliefs, developing them. We can examine beliefs and apples separately and figure out if the beliefs match the apples. Because the beliefs and the apples are part of a single phenomenon. They evolve together, much as flowers and bees' eyes do. That's why I'd like to formulate the issue of Santa Claus as one of resolving an internal tension within a self and an external tension between oneself and others. It lets us get at the issue that there's something a bit funny about believing in Santa Claus without appealing to murky notions of correspondence between the content of internal beliefs and external reality. This book is about things that we are not sure we believe, half believe, believe sometimes but not always, maybe hope we believe but don't as much as we want to, maybe wish to stop believing but are not sure who we would be if we did. 
I want to investigate what the best attitude is to take towards these things, both per personally and as a community, and to see if we can come up with something better than screaming at each other or at the recalcitrant parts of ourselves, you're a liar or you're crazy. If Santa Claus is that for you, fine. If you happen not to believe in Santa Claus, maybe because some wise-ass kid like my son told you that he doesn't exist, um, pick something you believe in but isn't universally acknowledged as real. I would suggest the point of your life, and in fact everything. Your life will end someday and so will everything else. Given that, what is the point of doing anything at all? Some answer that it's doing what God wants, but why does his life have a point? And if it doesn't, how can his point-free life give a point to yours? Some think the point of life is to reproduce our genes, but that seems just as far-fetched. Supposing that in a distant galaxy there was a wormhole with the feature that anything you shoot in one end would be shot out on the other end, duplicated a trillion, 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 trillion times. We wouldn't drop everything and mount an expedition to shoot, shoot a human skin cell into the wormhole, even though it would reproduce our genes better than we ever could because it would be pointless. So duplication of our genes is not inherently pointful, and is certainly not the point of anything else. Some people think the point of their life comes from the fact that they freely choose it. And on first blush, this idea has a certain macho charm. But if you think about it for a couple of seconds, you'll see that it is problematic too. If I can give my life a point by willing it at 2 p.m., then I can will it to have a different point at 2.01 p.m. My life could be a succession of acts of will, but what would be, what would be the point of those acts? And what would tempt me to want one point rather than another? If I'm imposing a point on my whole life, what makes the, that act of imposition mine and not just a random event? Now my point right now is not that any of these answers to the question, what's the point, is right or wrong, but just that none of them is uncontroversial or provable. If you're like most people, I would guess you don't have a single firm answer to the question, what is the point of your life, and that you oscillate among several. So whatever your answer is functions as your own personal Santa Claus. Okay. Question? Yes. Back to the, the graph with the apple. Yeah. Um, when you were talking about that, when you, I, I, you said mind. Okay, brain, whatever. Well, <laughs> How are they different? The mind is, is not understood yet, whereas the brain is becoming more and more understood. Does either of them have a thing in it that looks like an apple? Okay, that's, I don't care then. I, um, any other questions? Wait, that's it. <laughs> what? I don't know if the mind has an apple. You think the mind could have an apple in it? Okay. <laughs> if, if, there's, if there's a an incorporeal spiritual substance um, how could it have an apple in it? <laughs> I don't well, because I, I, make, I make artwork. Okay. So there's the, there's the physical artwork, but there's the non-physical artwork that's in my mind. I guess I guess I'm not saying I'm not saying you're wrong I'm just saying that it doesn't really explain anything you know what I mean it's like it's like how people used to say like how does how does opium make people get to sleep and before they understood how it worked they said well it has a dormitive virtue and then people were like well what's a dormitive virtue well it's a mysterious power that makes people go to sleep 
And I'm like, well, uh, okay, I guess you're right. It does have a mysterious power. So if you say the mind is this mysterious thing we don't understand that has a mysterious power to think about apples, you're obviously right. But, but it's no, in a I, sense uninformative. No, I don't understand that. that right, no, we don't understand it. Okay. I would even leave across out the word yet and just say we don't understand it. And say, okay, so there's a mysterious power uh, which gives us the power to think things about apples. But at that point, even calling it a mysterious power, I wonder what that really it, I, My worry is that it seems too much like the dormitive virtue. It's just kind of, as somebody said, uh, it's, it's baptizing our ignorance. It's taking our ignorance and giving it a name. Any other questions? Yes? Yes. Um, what became of Ari and Skylar's relationship? Um, the, the Santa Claus did not was not the rock that it foundered upon, but uh, they gradually grew apart. Although I think now Skylar, whose real name is not Skylar, um, plays the piano and they may hang out sometime. Uh, <laughs> any other questions? What else is a lie in this book? Oh, that's a lie. What else is a lie? Every, anything about me is probably a lie. Because <laughs> yeah. it's more embarrassing. <laughs> Any other questions? It could be philosophical. It could, I don't know. Well, I have a question about the philosophical content of the question. I mean, obviously, as a student of philosophy, there's like a long tradition of asking these kinds of questions. My mom is probably the most famous pissed Bertrand Russell off because he believed he could say these were things were fictive entities. Right. And the question does Santa exist sounds a priori stupid, but like does no, do numbers exist, then you get into some heady ontological stuff. So is, is that the point is to push certain larger metaphysical questions? Well, I think the point is to ask the question. And then the point is to say if there's other things that you feel worried about, but you don't worry about Santa, like the soul, or the meaning of your life, or justice, or God, the point is to think about those. I think some of those things, if you write books about them, people drive bombs into your house, which I don't want to do. I don't want to have that happen. I just don't care that much. Um, <laughs> but, um, so, but, but I guess I, I do think that the, the sort of move that philosophy made when it became academic may already be covering over certain ways of answering these questions. So I, I know people sometimes say, well, okay, uh, we just need to talk about whether numbers exist and whether animals exist and whether sets exist. And I almost feel that once you say, okay, let's just get down to it and start answering those questions, that for my money, certain worthwhile options have already been shut down. <laughs> As if we could just roll up our sleeves and start saying, um, I guess in a sense I'm sympathetic with Heidegger, who says like, before we start saying the numbers exist, we should start investigating what it means for something to exist at all. Um, and, and that's kind of what I'm doing, more than like getting into just a discussion about the ontology of fictional entities or, or anything like that. Any, any other questions? It doesn't have to be about Maynard and stuff. I mean, just gonna, <laughs> whatever. Whatever, yeah. Why did you decide to write this book? Um, you know, I had, I had done 
philosophy for some time, actually even kind of like as a kid, um, and, and it always kind of exercised me. Um, and then I kind of took a detour through professional comedy writing, because it seemed like that was like a, a waste of time sort of studying philosophy and then no one would ever read anything I wrote and, and I wasn't, you know, was asked, trying to answer these questions that were like people had spent thousands of years failing to solve, so the idea that I would spend my whole life failing to solve them for another 50 years seemed, seemed frustrating. Um, but then, then I, I kind of figured out this way that I could like come back to it and make it funny and even, and even like talk about humor, because there's a whole part of the book about, about comedy. Um, and, and I liked that. So it was almost like taking two different, uh, like a, two different parts of me and putting them together. I found it very satisfying. It was very fun. Um, is it, uh, is it time, should, should we just start signing, if people are, are either not, don't want to or are unable to ask questions? <laughs> we, I, I could just start signing or, or should we do that? Okay, that's what we're going to do. What? Wait. I did something wrong. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.